Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew 15. If you are willing and able, would you please stand as I read verses 1 through 28. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do you worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain this parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. If you're here in the room with me and you feel comfortable, you can take your mask off this time. Um, I want to welcome all of you into the room. Uh, welcome all of you who are watching online. Um, it is such a privilege every single time I get to stand here and share God's word with you. This was a long one, so thanks, Tom. You, you did a bang-up job on reading that. Um, we're continuing in our sermon series, Encounters with Jesus, and 
I really think each one of us is going to find themselves in this story somewhere today. It's, that's the case with most narratives that we read. We're somewhere in the story. But I want you to pay attention and figure out where you show up in this story. Um, I'll, I'll pray to begin our time together. God, thank you so much for the ability to have your word, your revelation to us about who you are in a language that we can understand. Thank you that we get to read it and speak it and talk about it in a country where we don't have to fear persecution. We pray for our brothers and sisters across the world who don't have the privileges that we do this morning. I pray as we get into your word that your Holy Spirit would illuminate it and that you would show us more of who you are and show us more of who we are. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So a few weeks ago, uh, I was leaving my house in a hurry because I had about 15 minutes to get here for a meeting. And as soon as our nanny walked in the door, I just handed her baby Jude and I started grabbing my stuff and I was about to walk out the door and the nanny said, why is there water all over your kitchen floor? I thought, oh no. So I walk over and sure enough, our kitchen floor is covered in like standing water. Like we have two rugs there that were completely soaked. And so I I look under our sink expecting to see water like gushing out, but it's, it's dry. And then I stand up and I'm looking around and I see that there's water standing on the counter also. And so I'm like looking at the ceiling, I'm opening the cupboards. And to make a long story short, we had a watermelon that was only, we had only gotten it two days before from the store and it looked ripe, but all this water had come from the watermelon. And I don't mean that it had like rotted a little bit and there was like juice coming out of it there was like a six inch hole in the end of this thing, like it exploded. And I'm I'm not an expert on like botany and chemistry and things like that, but I think probably what happened is our watermelon that looked great and Lucy was very excited about eating that night um, was actually rotten on the inside and so gas is built up and then it blew the end out and it soaked everything in our kitchen. I'm glad it wasn't a pipe but everything was sticky and smelled weird for a really long time after that. Um, But the point is, it looked great on the outside, but it was rotting on the inside. And as we continue looking at encounters with Jesus, we're going to find that they're not all pleasant encounters. And today we're going to meet some skeptics who encountered Jesus. And they were so concerned about appearing godly that they missed God himself when he was standing right in front of them. And the skeptics that I'm referring to are the Pharisees and the scribes. Verse one tells us, then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now, when we went through our series on the gospel of Mark, I called the Pharisees the party poopers. And I called them that because every time Jesus does something cool, like heal somebody or do a miracle, the Pharisees and the scribes pop up and they have like something negative and uh, boring to say about it. So it helps to know who these party poopers are. So we'll start with the scribes. The scribes had extensive knowledge of the law and they could draft legal documents. So they could uh, do like marriage certificates and deeds for the sale of land and things like that. 
They were basically like lawyers. So it was a profession. But you've got to remember in, in first century Israel, the law didn't just mean the civil laws, but it also meant the Torah, the laws of God. So they knew scripture and they knew the civil laws. And every village would have had one of these scribes, including Galilee. The Pharisees were a sect of Judaism in Jesus' day. Um, you could think of it sort of like denominations within Christianity. Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists, we're all Christians, we all love Jesus, but there's different denominations. And that's kind of what Pharisees were. But because there was no um, separation of church and state, so to speak, in that day, they were also sort of like a political party. So Pharisees were political and spiritual leaders for the Jews. Um, and some of them may have been scribes, but being a Pharisee wasn't a profession. It was more an affiliation and a lifestyle. And it actually uh, said something about your pedigree also, because most Pharisees were born into it. So the Pharisees, in addition to scripture, they taught their own oral laws. And they claimed that these were passed down orally from the time of Moses. But this often led to their putting laws around laws around laws, and they would get super specific about what a commandment meant. So if God said, hey, don't work on the Sabbath, they would go a step further and get into, well, here's what's considered work, and here's what's not considered work, and here's how much weight you can carry, and things like that. So not all Jews would be familiar with these oral laws because they weren't actually in Scripture. They were handed down orally from rabbis to disciples. And if you saw me preach several weeks ago, we talked about the idea of rabbis and disciples. So maybe it'll ring a bell because I know you remember everything that I ever say up here. Um, but the fact that the scribes and the Pharisees expected Jesus to teach his disciples the oral laws meant that they saw Jesus as a rabbi himself. And Rabbi Jesus was attracting so much attention that it says that the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So we're going to look at a map here so that you can picture what we're talking about. So you can see, um, if you see the Sea of Galilee, on the northwest corner there, you see Capernaum. And that was kind of Jesus' home base. That's where the majority of his ministry has happened to this point. And Jerusalem is so far to the south that it's not even on this map, which means that I should have found a better map. Um, but if you were to go down past the map, that's where Jerusalem is. So Galilee would have been about a four-day journey for the Pharisees and the scribes. So this wasn't just like, hey, let's pop over to Galilee and check out this Jesus guy. They were on a mission. This might ring a bell because the most famous Pharisee in the New Testament was a man named Saul of Tarsus, or you might know him as the Apostle Paul. And when we meet him in the New Testament, before he was a Christian, what was he doing? He was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus, which would have been even a longer journey, and he was trying to weed out the people with the bad teaching. So we can see the Pharisees and scribes traveled all that way because they saw it as their task to go and check up on everyone. So the Pharisees and the scribes basically pooped on parties all over Israel. And we can see in verse two, they immediately confront Jesus with a question, which was really a criticism. They asked, 
Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, in our modern context, it would not be that weird to say, dude, why don't you wash your hands before you eat, right? Because we all learned to do that when we were kids, and especially in this era, we wash our hands before we do just about anything. But that's not actually what they ask. The scribes and the Pharisees ask, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And they're referring to those oral laws, the traditions that are handed down from rabbis to disciples. And this has to do with purity codes in the Old Testament. <clears throat> in other words, what would make someone clean or unclean before God? And if you've read any of Leviticus at all, you know that there are lots and lots and lots and lots of things that can make you unclean before God, according to those old purity laws. And it actually shouldn't come as a total shock that the Jewish authorities are confronting Jesus about matters of cleanliness, because think of what Jesus has done at this point. He touched a leper. He went to Gentile territory where they raised pigs. He encountered the demon-possessed. He was touched by a bleeding woman. He touched a dead body, and he hung out with tax collectors and sinners. Many of these things should have made Jesus unclean, according to Scripture, except that they didn't. What actually happened is when Jesus encountered these people, when Jesus touched a dead body, when Jesus touched a leper, when Jesus encountered someone with a demon, instead of him becoming clean, he made them clean. Instead of him becoming unclean, he made them clean. The Pharisees and scribes have come all this way to find something that they can call Jesus out on. So here's their chance. His disciples don't wash their hands before eating. <clears throat> but you know how many scriptures there are about washing your hands before you eat? None. There is no scripture about having to wash your hands before you eat. So Jesus' response is very pointed. In verse 3 it says, he answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? He makes a blatant contrast between the traditions of the elders and the commands of God. So which is greater? Obviously, the commandments of God. But Jesus points out that the Pharisees and the scribes are living like that's not the case. And he gives a specific example. In verse 4, Jesus says, For God commanded, honor your father and mother. And he's quoting the fifth commandment here. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. He's quoting both Exodus 21 and Leviticus 20. He's quoting the actual word of God. But then in verse 5, Jesus says, But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition... You've made void the word of God. And Jesus is referring here to a Jewish tradition that the Pharisees endorsed called Corban. And Corban is when someone uh, makes an offering to the temple treasury. And of course, there's nothing wrong with making an offering to the temple treasury, except that people would take the money that they should use to support and honor their parents in their old age, and they would give it to the temple instead. So Jesus is kind of like, yeah, my disciples, they didn't keep your traditions, 
but you keep your traditions and don't keep the commands of God. And tell other people they don't have to keep the commands of God as long as they keep your traditions. See, we could just look at this as a bit of ancient doctrinal dispute, but the important thing for us to ask is, do we, as a church, have traditions that we hold higher than God's commands? Do we have traditions that we hold higher than God's commands? I would really be curious to know what comes to your mind, even as I say that, because every church congregation that's been around for any time at all has their sacred cows, right? Like the bulletins and the style of worship and what's the name and what font is the name in and uh, the translation of Bible that is correct, which changes every 30 years, but it's correct for that 30 years. I remember when I was growing up, the church that I went to first started projecting lyrics onto a screen instead of using the hymnals and people left the church over that because it was their tradition, which felt on par with the word of God. But even apart from the preferences of our local church, the church as a whole has some traditions that aren't necessarily prescribed in scripture. When I was in seminary, one of my professor uh, divided us up into groups of three and he gave us like five minutes and he said, I want each of your groups to look through the New Testament and try to find all the accounts of people preaching sermons in worship. You know how many we found? None. Because the only time preaching is mentioned in the New Testament, it's preaching outside of the church to those who aren't Christians. Now, is that to say it's wrong to preach a sermon within Christian worship? Obviously, I don't think so because I'm standing here doing it. But a lot of us would kind of get our panties in a wide if we showed up for church and there was no sermon, right? Because it feels like that tradition weighs so much. It feels like this is scripture. Or how about this? We, uh, we live under the new covenant, so we don't have to keep all the old ceremonial laws and all the old civil laws, but the moral laws we still keep. We uphold the Ten Commandments. We post them places and get mad when they're not posted places. But there's one of the Ten Commandments a lot of us don't pay that much attention to. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, the fourth commandment. Most of us, myself included, are not very consistent in keeping this, and most of us have not even thought through what it means to keep this. And I don't think that's a conscious decision. We're like, hey, I'm going to break the fourth commandment. But it's just like, by this point, it's tradition, right? You just do what you've always done. And my point is this. We can look back at the silly blind Pharisees and see how they were missing the point but it's more important that we examine our own hearts and ask ourselves, are we following traditions or are we following God's word? And in order to answer that, we have to actually look at and read and know God's word. As Jesus ends his encounter with the Pharisees and scribes, he calls them hypocrites. And I think everybody knows that word, and we usually hear that word in some sort of religious context. It's someone who doesn't practice what they preach. Um, they're holier than thou, like it has these religious overtones. But hypocrite is actually a Greek word. A hypocrite was someone who was an actor and wore a mask in a play, in a musical, and something like that. 
So in essence, Jesus is saying, you're acting like you're holy. But what's true of the Pharisees and scribes? Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, 13, and he tells us, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In its original context, Isaiah was speaking this prophecy to Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel before it was conquered and they were exiled. But here Jesus says, Isaiah was saying this about you, about the Pharisees and the scribes. And little do these Pharisees and scribes know that just like Judah in Isaiah's day, their temple will soon be destroyed. And this elaborate system that they've built will soon be destroyed. From here, rather than responding to the Pharisees and the scribes' question about washing, Jesus speaks to his own followers. And he tells them this in verse 11. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Um, And he stops there. And that's kind of a weird thing to say, because it's like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Like spit, barf, garlic breath. Now that I think about it, Jesus, lots of gross things come out of the mouth. You are right. But before Jesus can elaborate on what he means, he's interrupted. It says, then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Imagine... <clears throat> Imagine someone unaffiliated with a political party having no regard for American politics won the presidential election. They got there according to the Constitution, but not according to the traditions of men. I have a feeling both Democrats and Republicans would be pretty perturbed about that, right? Because they basically are like, I have no regard for your system. I'm going by the Constitution and I'm winning. It's not a perfect analogy, but that's kind of this sort of annoyance and anger that the Pharisees and scribes were feeling toward Jesus, who's doing the rabbi thing, but he's not doing it according to their system. But Jesus basically says, don't worry about them. Verse 13 says, he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. And I believe here Jesus is throwing back to a parable that he told two chapters earlier. We're looking in Matthew 15 today. Matthew 13, he's talking, he's speaking in parables and his disciples are there and they hear him. And in that parable, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So thanks to the help and mad skills of Vicki Taylor, who is our worship leader today, uh, Brandy and I now have a really pretty flower garden in our front yard. And um, I've done a lot of trial and error. And at this point, I have murdered a lot of plants, but I'm learning. And I, for some reason, find it incredibly satisfying to weed and to pull the weeds up. But If you weed very much at all, you learn pretty quickly that if you pull up a weed that's really close to a flower, especially a flower that hasn't been planted very long, you might just pull up the flower also. 
And that's kind of what the master says to his servants in this parable of Jesus in Matthew 13. They ask, should we gather the weeds? And he says, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So that was the parable that Jesus told his disciples two chapters ago in Matthew 13. And he actually goes on to explain it to his disciples. So if you want to do some further study, you can keep reading on and he will explain what all the elements of that parable mean. But back to where we are in chapter 15, Jesus says, let them alone. Talking about the scribes and Pharisees. They're blind guides and the blind lead the blind. Both will fall into a pit. So what does this mean? It literally means leave the hypocrites alone. Why? Because if you spend your time and energy going after the skewed understanding of, of what they teach about the kingdom of God, you may distract others from the actual kingdom of God because you draw more attention to them. It's better to grow and flourish and spend your time seeking God first in his kingdom than to go after the hypocrites. And I got to tell you, honestly, this is a hard one for me. Because we all know that they're modern-day scribes and Pharisees. They're, they're are hypocrites. And even though I don't preach about it a lot, I may not talk to you about it a lot, I can become so frustrated that people are abusing the Word of God and missing the kingdom of God that it distracts me from Christ. I get distracted myself. And it's frankly easier for me to love people who don't even know Jesus than it is to love people who misrepresent Jesus. And in that way, I'm no better than a scribe or a Pharisee. So I think Jesus' point is this. Don't worry about them. God will sort it all out, so don't get distracted. May we, as disciples of Jesus Christ, may we not be defined by what we are against, but rather what we're for the Lord Jesus Christ. Immediately after Jesus says all this to his disciples, Peter says, explain the parable to us. And presumably Peter is asking what Jesus meant when he said, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person because that's what Jesus goes on to explain in verse 18. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. I actually quoted this passage a few months ago when we were in our Proverbs series and I was preaching on the heart. And the analogy that I used then was that our hearts are like my iPhone that I dropped in the toilet. Um, it still sort of worked, but I couldn't trust it to do what I actually needed it to do. See, sin doesn't come from out there. Where does Jesus say that it comes from? All of these horrible sins. He says it comes from in here, from our hearts. 
So what we need isn't more rules. What we need is a new heart. And Jesus is the only one who can do that for us. And the Pharisees and the scribes knew the prophets. They should at least understand this on some level. Because the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 36 of Ezekiel 36, uh, God speaks through Ezekiel and he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. By the way, as Presbyterians, when we baptize, you usually see us sprinkling or pouring. And some people are like, why do you sprinkle instead of uh, immersion? Well, this is one of the reasons. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, which is a weird word to say. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. So who will clean us? Not the rules, not the Pharisees, not even the priest. God himself will clean us. Who will put a new heart in us? God will. Who will give us the spirit of the living God? God will. Who will cause you to keep his statutes? God will. So is, is Jesus saying that the laws don't matter? Absolutely not. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We usually stop reading there. But you read on, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But then the very next verse, he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of who? The scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's a different kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about. There's a different kind of righteousness that exists in the kingdom of heaven. And then he explains what the commandments are really all about. It's that famous part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus emphasized that the commands are not simply about our actions, but they're about our hearts. For example, in verse 27, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it's not that the rules don't matter. It's that the rules have to do with our hearts. And since our hearts are defiled to begin with, we can't keep them. This is why the gospel is good news because Jesus fulfilled all the law and became for us the perfect sacrifice and the means by which we get a new heart and we get the spirit of God. He is the means by which we're able to obey the commands of God. He's the means by which we can look at the commands of God and it doesn't seem like arbitrary drudgery, but we're like, this is good. This is the word of God telling us how we can live and thrive. That's a lot better news than you better wash your hands before you eat. Although you should probably do that too. 
I'm not saying don't wash your hands before you eat. Definitely wash your hands. So we're going to end by looking at the story of a Canaanite woman. It may seem unrelated to all the things about the Pharisees and the scribes, but I think it appears right after that story very intentionally. Verse 21 says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And let's look at a picture of the map again so we can see where they are. And they actually are on this map. So again, look at Capernaum there. Actually, Gennesaret under there uh, in chapter 14. That's the last location we see Jesus and his disciples at. So he was probably there and he went all the way up there to Tyre. So uh, if you were to look this up in the Old Testament, you would find all kinds of things about those two cities. And there are all kinds of cool implications that we don't have time to get into. But I just want you to notice two things as you look at the map. First, Tyre and Sidon are not very close to Capernaum. And the second thing is they're in an area delineated as Syria, which means they're not in Jewish territory anymore. So keep that in your mind. Verse 22 says, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, you don't have to know much about the Old Testament to know that when a Canaanite is mentioned, it's not a good thing. The Canaanites were like the arch enemy of the Jews. They were seen as unclean. They had idols. They were infamous for sacrificing their children to one of their gods. These are the people that Israel had to go to war against, and they had to displace to be able to inherit the promised land. So then you add the fact to that, that it's a demon-possessed Canaanite, no thank you. Uh, A good uh, God-honoring Jew would want nothing to do with this woman, and especially nothing to do with her daughter. But notice what this Canaanite woman calls Jesus. She calls him Lord. She calls him Son of David. Lord would mean master. This is an enemy coming up to an enemy and saying, master. And then she calls him son of David, which to the Jews, without a doubt meant you are king. But why would a Canaanite woman say son of David, king? See, this unclean, defiled Canaanite woman addresses Jesus properly. The Pharisees and the scribes who looked holy and kept all the rules did not address Jesus properly. But Jesus didn't respond how we'd expect him to or even want him to, honestly, because he didn't respond at all. Verse 23 says, he did not answer her a word and his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she's crying out after us. See, the disciples are Jews. They are descendants of Abraham. They are the chosen people of God. And this is a dirty Canaanite. I, I heard a New Testament scholar talking about this passage. This was years before the, the social climate that we're in now. He said, this is the most racially charged scene in the entire New Testament. The disciples are annoyed that a Canaanite woman would dare approach their rabbi. Finally, in verse 24, it says, Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
In other words, I only help Jews. And that doesn't sound very Christ-like, does it? Verse 25 says, the Canaanite woman came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. She knelt. She knelt before Rabbi Jesus and called him Lord again. Because however insulted she may have been, she knows that Jesus is the one who can make her daughter whole. But Jesus, again, doesn't respond the way we would expect. Verse 26 says he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What's going on here? Jesus is supposed to love the rejects and, and the downtrodden and the Jews and the Gentiles and everybody. He's inclusive, right? But did he just call her a dog? First of all, it's like, Jesus, you're in Canaan, man. Like, who did you think you were going to run into? You're not in, you're not in like Jew territory anymore. What, what did you expect to find? But secondly, you've already healed Gentiles. In fact, you healed demon-possessed Gentiles. How is this any different? And to make it even weirder, if you skip down in your Bible, you know what happens after this? He feeds 4,000. What does he feed them? Bread. And who are they? They're Gentiles. Is Jesus a hypocrite? There are lots of different uh, explanations for what's going on here. And I think there are many applications. Some talk about it in terms of this woman's persistence, and that should teach us something about how we ought to pray. But I think Jesus is still teaching his disciples a lesson. He's teaching them the same thing he was trying to teach them back at Capernaum with the Pharisees and the scribes. Because they appear holy and clean on the outside, but they're defiled on the inside, just like my watermelon. But now here's this Canaanite woman. She's the enemy. She's dirty. She's defiled. Jesus just called her a dog. Or at least it seems that way if we judge her based on her ethnicity and her rule keeping. But she is the one who addresses Jesus as son of David, Lord Jesus isn't teaching her a lesson so much, I think, because he knows her faith and he knows she's going to persist. And she does. She responds in verse 27. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, do you think this woman had ever followed a single law in the Torah? Probably not. Probably not familiar with the oral laws of the Pharisees, but she proclaimed, Jesus is Lord. And because she proclaimed, Jesus is Lord, Jesus made her daughter clean, but he also made this woman's heart clean. Don't you wish you could hear what the rest of her life was like? Don't you wish you could hear what it was like when she went home and found her daughter healed? I'm almost done, but I want to suggest to you that you are someone in this story. So are you the Pharisee? Maybe you keep all the rules and maybe you secretly think you're a little better than people who don't. Do you act holy to cover up what's going on in your heart? Um, and I want to tell you, this is 100% who I used to be. Um, I did this I had all these rules I had to keep and all my rules that I kept made me feel better than the people who didn't keep them. But if I forgot to keep a rule that day, it made me feel like God was going to be mad at me. 
And I want to tell you um, that Jesus can change your heart so that you love him more than you love the rules. So maybe you're the Pharisee or maybe you're a weed puller. Maybe you're the one that's anxious to get in there and set things straight. You see all the Pharisees and scribes and you get so angry that you want to hunt them down. You want to talk about them on Facebook. You want to bash them with your like-minded friends. And see, much of this even comes from a good place because you see people leaving the church because of things that they do. You see people not giving Jesus a chance because of the things that they do. And it hurts you. But you spend so much time and energy worried about how they're getting it wrong that you don't focus on who God has called you to be. So remember Jesus' words, let them alone. So are you the Pharisee? Are you the weed puller? Or are you a Canaanite? Maybe you don't feel that you deserve what Jesus has to offer. In fact, you feel like maybe you've been an enemy of God. But you realize your desperate need. And I hope maybe you're starting to realize that Jesus is not just a good moral teacher, but Jesus is Lord. Wherever you find yourself this morning, whomever you identify with in this story, Jesus calls each of us to himself. And he's the one who can make the Canaanite's daughter whole with a word. He's the one who can make you clean. He's the one who can give you a new heart. He's the one who can give you the spirit of the living God. He will set you free. Let's pray. Holy God, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is not a list of do's and don'ts, but it is a fantastic, wonderful, redemptive story about the links that you will go to to redeem your people. It is a love letter written to us. We thank you that Jesus Christ kept all the rules that we can't, died the death that we deserve, and rose again three days later and sits at the right hand of you, Lord God, interceding on our behalf. Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray that they would put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you could give them a new heart and give them your Holy Spirit that you could cause them to walk in your ways. We pray all this in the blessed name of Christ. Amen.